Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to a new edition of New Books in Psychoanalysis. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with um, Dr. Patricia Garavici, who is a licensed psychoanalyst and analytic supervisor practicing in Philadelphia and in New York. Um, We'll be speaking with her today uh, primarily about her book, Please Select Your Gender, From the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism, um, published by Rutledge most recently. And we'll also um, touch upon another book she wrote, um, published uh, a number of years ago now, The Puerto Rican Syndrome um, by the Other Press. She's um, a founding member and current director of the Philadelphia Lacan Group, and she's an award-winning author. She's published nationally and internationally. She wrote the foreword for Erotic Anger, a user's manual, and contributed to The Dreams of Interpretation, A Century Down the Royal Road, which was University of Minnesota Press, uh, and most recently had an essay in the collection um, on Lacan and Addiction and Anthology. Um, her book, The Puerto Rican Syndrome, uh, from 2003, won Knapp's Gradiva Award and the Boyer Prize of the American Anthropological, Anthropological Association. Um, in her new book, um, Please Select Your Gender, she uses case studies, surveys of transsexual memoirs, discussions of Freud, Lacan, feminists, and queer studies authors, and the origins of sexology to offer an original way to think about sexual identity and sexual difference while showing how transgenderism is reorienting clinical practice. Um, and uh, it's quite a read. Her um, uh, way of uh, approaching a topic is nothing short of thoroughgoing, um, historical, anthropological, uh, always an analyst, um, but uh, beyond uh just clinical theory. She really looks at the entire society. She teaches uh, us a lot about um, what it is to be uh, to be an American. Um, she's a, I believe, Argentinian, and so she looks at us with a very interesting um, eye. Um, so we will uh, begin uh, shortly our interview with her. And we also want to encourage people um, after you listen to the. Um, the interviews in general, if you have comments, um, if there's someone you'd like to see interviewed, um, if you uh, would like to say something about the interview, its contents, etc., please feel free to go um, to the website, to New Books and Psychoanalysis, and, um, and write in. Um, those comments are very valuable to us. Um, and so without further ado, um, we will now move to the interview. Hi, welcome to uh, New Books in Psychoanalysis, and uh, my name is Tracy Morgan, your host as always, and um, we have with us today um, Patricia Garavici, and uh, we're very pleased to have her um, to discuss her most recent publication, which is uh, Please Select Your Gender, From the Invention of Hysteria to the Democratizing of Transgenderism, published most recently by Rutledge, and uh, I believe we'll also be discussing her book, uh, from the other press, the Puerto Rican syndrome, which was published a little bit earlier than what New Books in Psychoanalysis is supposed to focus on. But since we have Patricia here and she's written those two books, who knows? Um, so, Patricia, welcome very much. Uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, and uh, we have a lot um, 
to talk about. I want to introduce you to the audience in a few ways, and uh, uh, I guess I want people to know, Patricia has a, a term or a phrase that I've heard her use once, and it's been referred to here and there, that um, she's a practitioner of the unconscious. She's also a, a psychoanalyst, but she's a practitioner of the unconscious. And she's also, in my reading of her books, um, a scholar of hysteria of the um, same caliber as an Ian Hacking or an Elaine Showalter, um, really very scholarly work. Um, she was a former inner-city clinic director um, working, um, practicing Lacanian analysis in North Philly with the urban poor. And I see her as a, an anthropologist um, of American culture. And I believe if people read your books, um, they will... They will get that that sense as, uh, as well. But in reading your um, two of your books, The Puerto Rican Syndrome and Please Select Your Gender, um, you utilize a Lacanian theory of hysteria to elucidate um, your subject matter. And you do so with great passion. And I was wondering, how has hysteria come to be um, such a centerpiece for you in your, in your thinking? Well, first of all, thank you for having me here today. And... In a way, your question makes me replay what was the history of the invention of uh, psychoanalysis and the discovery of the unconscious. I wasn't determined to work on hysteria. It was my clinical practice in many years ago, almost 20 years ago, in North Philadelphia in the Hispanic barrio. I was working with patients who were presenting very strange symptoms that had been diagnosed as something called the Puerto Rican syndrome. And to my big surprise, these opaque symptoms, they look like they would have crisis of anger or uh, epileptic attacks that did not correspond to any medical cause, happened to be an exact repetition of the same strange symptoms with which Freud, when he was a very young practitioner, started his practice coming back from um, doing an internship with Charcot in Paris. He comes back to Vienna and starts practicing with uh, women who had strange symptoms that traditional medicine could not treat, could not cure, and have no answer for. And that's how he invents psychoanalysis as a form of approaching these obscure symptoms, and with it discovers unconscious. So I found myself, in a way, retracing the steps of one of the biggest discoveries of the 20th century in a humble little office in North Philadelphia. <laughs> it was called the Bloque de Oro, the Golden Block, to commemorate dreams of getting rich quickly in America. And as you may imagine, inner cities realities are far from that dream there, the nightmarish nightmarish side of that kind of experience, uh, very ravaged by drug wars, by extreme poverty, three generations of unemployment, and still there every day, the the hysterics of the ghetto, uh, I felt were still in the same way that they guided Freud, they were guiding me and helping uh, me in a way feeling as if I had to reinvent psychoanalysis, the hysterics of the ghetto today are still contributing in the same way that maybe women, oppressed women in Vienna at the end of the 19th century were doing for Freud. Hmm. Yes, there's... And, go ahead. Mm-hmm, yes. No, you go and, ahead. And, and his, hysteria, uh, not only I, I experienced this form of hysteria that also has to do with the racial component because it had to be, happened to be a diagnosis for hysteric symptoms 
found in supposedly only Puerto Rican people. So you have elements of uh, pol political elements playing, which is, I think, what made hysteria interesting, not only for psychoanalysts. Hysteria has also caught the attention of feminists, because uh, it's a sort of improvised political protest as well as being a, a clinical manifestation. But I not only have to deal with hysteria, I found that this way of thinking in terms of an entity, hysteria that still exists, because if we were to look only at the DSM as a separate entity, hysteria has been eliminated. It disappeared already in 1952, mm -hmm. uh, when in fact was just a semantic suppression, no longer hysteria was listed as a separate diagnosis. However, people continue suffering symptoms that correspond to classical hysteric symptoms in the case of North Philadelphia. And when I was also working in private practice as well with middle-class patients, I discovered other forms of hysteria that still I could think of those in terms of the frame of hysteria Although the symptoms were changed and uh, they were formulations around issues of sexual difference. I had um, patients who were asking, uh, it was, uh, in the case of North Philadelphia, what was quite interesting was that these were hysteric patients, but as opposed to what is often assumed that hysteria happens mostly with women and we could imagine oppressed women in uh, Vienna or uh, women of, uh, low, of more lower class in France coming to see the formidable Charcot. Uh, for the Puerto Rican syndrome, it was diagnosed in the 50s among men, mostly very uh, courageous, macho men who were soldiers coming from the Korean War. So there you see also an interesting issue dealing already with gender, that hysteria could happen in men and women. And in my practice uh, with middle-class patients more recently, I was hearing hysteric patients, in this case was mostly women, who were presenting questions about sexual identity, formulated, am I a man or a woman, or rather, am I enough of a woman? I am feminine enough, I am straight or bisexual. And what does that mean? And this question about um, sexual identity based on uh, object choice, because the question was mostly, am I straight or bisexual, made me question why was uh, this issue about sexual identity, which is quite important for hysteria, manifesting itself in this, uh, with this particular permutation. Because previously my practice back in Argentina, I would have similar cases of patients, middle class, uh, women perhaps, who would present this question strictly in terms of identity as, am I a woman or if I'm enough of a woman? Whereas in my practice in the US, that was presented differently as, am I straight or bisexual? As if sexual identity was purely dependent on an on a object choice on an inclination or a sort of sexual preference. Mm -hmm. you, have a, you have a critique in the book, I think, of um, mm -hmm. some ideas on Please Select Your Gender that are put forth, uh, I think, by Diana Fuss, Judith Butler, um, about the performative. And I just was thinking in mm -hmm. terms of what you... You make an argument that I almost understand and almost don't understand, but I find 
pretty interesting that it's neither sex nor gender, or that the separation of gender from sex, which is so commonplace uh, here in the 21st mm-hmm. century in America, um, my, that, that, that you, you question that or you, you, uh, you trouble that, um, that separation that's been made, um, that gender is, you say if gender is purely performative, this is a question that you ask, um, or a statement you make, if gender is purely performative, the materiality of the body can be denied. However, in the current debate around sex changes, it is the materiality of the body that returns symptomatically. Um, can you talk? Uh, can you talk us through some of this critique of Butler's performative and uh, and your ideas about um, the? I don't even think it's a relationship between sex and gender. You have a different idea altogether, um, new, which is was new to me. You, you were very generously introducing me as a sort of anthropologist, <laughs> and, and I think any psychoanalyst could become an anthropologist in the sense that we get to witness culture from a very special perspective, which is being sitting behind the couch. So I'm, in that sense, I am an anthropologist. With the, my, my field of research is what I hear on the couch, and I heard on the couch this new form of um, formulation of the hysterical question, which was a sort of classic essential feature of hysteria understood from an Kenyan perspective of an issue of sexual identity, the assumption of a sexual position is particularly problematic for this hysteric subject. But what I thought initially when I heard this question, am I straight or bisexual, that in a way, this need to declare an identity and assuming that that identity was determined by a sexual orientation, I thought that this was a sort of a consequence of a post-feminine discourse, I may call it, influenced by thinkers like Judith Butler or Diana Fuss, the, the idea that gender is, is a performative, in a way, the body or the idea of uh, anatomy is destiny, that in matters of sexual positioning, the over-determinations of the body are very secondary. It's all about performance, which derives from a specific culture, a specific theory, sorry, about the use of linguistics. That is what one may call oneself or one becomes. Yeah. But what I found in my practice as well, when I compare this kind of very open-ended question, if I want to be a man, I can be a man or a woman, it's all an issue of parody or impersonation, that there is no uh, core or essence to a sexual being, I found that I had patients who had, some of them had changed sex or others who were considering uh, moving between the sexes or others who felt they were born in the wrong body. And with that, I discovered that uh, many uh, transgender people have a very different position, that in fact, they felt that it was the body was a sort of prison and there was something very important in the body itself, in the organ they were born with or they were deprived of. Mm -hmm. In the case of a woman who felt she was born trapped in the body of a man and she didn't have a penis but she felt like a he or or I had a patient who said to me that she had the the worst birth defect a woman could ever have, which is that she was born with a penis and testicles. Mm-hmm. In that case, 
the body, the anatomy, the materiality of the body is so important and so much evident in their suffering. But one could not think this is just a matter of culture, construction, discourse. There is something in the when I say real of the body that seems to be inescapable, unavoidable, and are sub- one could not surpass it. So in that sense, I felt a very interesting contradiction between a discourse in which gender would be malleable, free, one could move between the sexes, and patients who are talking about being trapped in a body and knowing very well what they should be and what they are not. So I, I found this uh, tension very interesting, and that's what comes a little in the title that I moved from a question about sexual identity with hysteric patients who were questioning their sexual identity but were not thinking about changing sex, and patients who wanted to change sex and were quite clear about their sexual identity. So we have two opposite ends, yeah. which made me question what is that we call gender? What is that we call sex? And, and for psychoanalysis, uh, and I think for life in general, Freud has a magnificent observation. With Freud, is a source of wonderful wisdom and surprise. He he says that the first assumption we make upon running into a stranger on the street is the first we may we make in, in our minds a, a distinction, man woman. The first thing we do upon running into a stranger. And my question was, why? Why is that so important? And why do we unconsciously need to, to, to make this very important basic cl- classification of another human being? And, and apparently we need, for some reason, our unconscious needs to determine sexual difference. And on the other hand, we are very ill-equipped to do that. So how do we manage to decide man, woman, when in fact there is... In the unconscious, no clear way of saying man, woman, or saying what is a woman like, what is a man like. And the unconscious comes up with compromise solution, which is what Freud theorized as all the idea of the phallus as a way of introducing sexual difference. So when you were saying uh, gender and sex and for, for psychoanalysis or for the unconscious, because psychoanalysis, in a way, the, the practitioner of the unconscious would mean it's a practice that works mostly with unconscious productions. The unconscious doesn't know about sexual difference, but needs, in order to to, to be in the world, to assume our sexuality, we need to make a sort of forced choice, an unconscious choice, occupying a sexual positioning. And it is a choice, but it's not a choice that one can make at will. And I think this is one of the things that also comes back in the title of the book, The Democratizing of Mm -hmm. Transgenderism, because I also found another contradiction that when I spoke with with people who who were thinking about changing sex, when I heard what my analysts were saying, I didn't feel that there was anything that have to do with free will, because often um, we see, and this has been something I observed, let's say, in the last 10 years, there has been an explosion of uh, cultural, the cultural presence of the transgender phenomenon, mm-hmm. that we, we see more and more transgender people, we have, and, and I think this is a good 
sign in a strong democracy that we are able to open ourselves and accept or people who may place themselves in between mm-hmm. uh, genders. But often the, the message is on the one hand an open democratic message. On the other hand, the idea is that you can change your sex and will. This is part of uh, freedom. What could be more democratic, more American than becoming what you want to be? Change your sex if you want to. A yeah. sort of makeover, which has nothing to do with what I know more in intimate details is what I hear from analysts who go through sex change, that it is not uh, just a decision like a facelift. It is a decision that, that is a, and consumes their own their life. It's as consuming as a career. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, a banal, there is a sort of cultural banalization of the importance of these issues as, and is reduced to a lifestyle choice like, okay, you choose to move to the suburbs or you change your diet and you become <laughs> vegan. It's not like that. It's something that at times they cannot help but do. And, and if they don't do it, they feel they cannot go on living. Right. So I think there is something that in the name of democracy is uh, not really democratic. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly, um, it's democracy maybe um, running uh, uh, the car over, the car of democracy is running over the unconscious, um, as if, you know, one does make a choice. Um, you know, there's the push that you can feel differently. You could change your feelings. You know, there's a lot of, yes. uh, I think it's it's part of that same um, that same push. You can, uh, you can become a man and you can be happy if you want to. Um, you know, or because you have the will to make that happen, and I, I, it's a, it's a very, um, well, it's it's almost like I think of it as a human rights violation, you know, to think of people in this way, uh, because that's I, I don't see. But, but it's also a suppression of the unconscious because it's not a choice we can change at will. It's not a consumeristic right. option. I think it's that is the idea, because there is, I think, an economic factor that not everyone can afford to have a sex change. And, and it is not, at times it's considered a sort of a corrective therapy, and, and that's also a very dangerous assumption. I think it has to be a very private individual choice, uh, assume that at times there could be an element of ir- irrationality in it, and it could be logic that is unconscious, uh, that does not follow maybe the logic of uh, consumerism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. different logic. Right. You were also asking something that is very important, the difference between gender and sex, that uh, what I found in my research is that the differentiation between sex and gender was relatively recent, and it was uh, produced by the early uh, attempts at trying to uh, intervene in the body when the first treatment, sex check treatments, they were bodily changes that were achieved through hormone treatments or the first sex changes, they needed a different terminology to uh, account for the necessity for a change. So they would talk about gender as a sense, an internalized sense of a gender identity, and they would talk of sex as the biological Mm -hmm. element of sex. And that differentiation was used to justify 
the, the first, uh, not only sex changes, but also the first uh, interventions in uh, babies that were born with uh, indications in the body where you could not tell clearly uh, whether or not it was a, a boy or a girl. Those are now called intersex uh, babies. In the past, they were called hermaphrodite. And, and uh, at times, there are many cases, much more than what we need. It's uh, not as numerous. Uh, I think there is one case in 1,000 or two cases in 1,000. It's a very low uh, quantity, but if you, if you accumulate numbers in, in, in a country with a big population like the U.S., you could end up with big numbers. And often the, these interventions were mandated by social determinations and not by the particular choices of each family. So this discourse has a, a difficult uh, path. The, the differentiation between sex and gender. And for psychoanalysis, it's about something else. And maybe we could sum it up by saying that sex uh, needs to be symbolized, if sex would be the bodily part, and gender needs to be embodied, that you need to put flesh into this uh, internalized sense of identity. Uh, and the idea of sexual difference would be something else that is neither sex nor gender. Mm-hmm. And that is this uh, uh, orientation. We, I don't think one knows consciously why we may be attracted to a partner of a, a particular gender. We may not know why. Why we may be straight or gay or bisexual or why we may feel male or female. That there are things that have to do with choices made unconsciously. Mm-hmm. But that needs to be made anyway. But that, that's why I use the expression forced choice. Mm-hmm. In order to exist in the world, we, we, we are sexual beings. That's what I think is uncomfortable about the unconscious. We are reminded of our sexuality and our sexual beings. And as sexual beings, we need to move in the world with a particular sexual position. And, and that's made very clearly when you hear what transgender patients talk about. That's so clearly a source of uh, pain, but also a necessity. In order to live in the world, one needs to occupy uh, an identity that is always gendered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, pretty, it's, it's a very complicated um, argument. As I found as I was reading the book, you know, I thought, okay, yes. well, you know, we're going to do this interview, and I'm definitely not Oprah, you know, who like, you know, like, hi, you're going to get a sex change, you know. But I found myself actually, my degree back when I got my BA is in women's studies before there was gender huh? studies, and I was thinking to myself, okay, there's tra- transgender, there's transsexuality, there's actually people who are just in transit in between you know know, Mm -hmm. and and it became extremely um i found myself confusing is not the word i was actually um you know approaching like a psychosis i was like wow this is a you know this betwixt and between when we begin to separate sex from gender in and how i've been raised to think about it right that they're they've been separate my whole lifetime one's sex and one's gender, sort of in, in the culture in which I've been, you know, been raised. So it um, was like a, uh, uh, like a, looking through a kaleidoscope, um, uh, reading, uh, reading the book. I wanted, I wanted to ask you um, about, I guess to go, to go back a little bit to hysteria. I was thinking that, you know, Bolas has this argument, right, that it's kind of, you know, that it had disappeared 
uh, you know, from psychoanalytic thinking for quite a while, and, and it's sort of making a slow, a slow comeback, as it were. But um, what does hysteria offer us conceptually that um, concepts like dissociation or the borderline personality um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. don't offer us. I mean, because I, I, you can feel the difference in reading your book, that you're talking about a mm-hmm. very different subjectivity. Um, but I think because we have a wide listenership of many uh, orientations, it would mm-hmm. be helpful um, if you could talk to us about how you see this. Um, when, when I talk about history, I talk at times even in an extended sense, assuming that uh, the... Anyone who speaks is somehow hysteric, is divided and coming into being through language, and that has effects of subjective division, mm-hmm. and that the, the speaking being is, by definition, hysteric. Also, I borrow from Lacan the idea that uh, the structure of desire, when we talk about desire, and that's important when we deal with issues of sexuality, that desire is, by definition, hysteric. That is desire of desire of desire of the others. We were talking about mm-hmm. um, particularities of hysteria from dissociation. I would focus on another one, which would be the tendency the, in hysteria to identify the mimetic quality of hysteria, the hysteria. When we talk about mass hysteria, that's one element we highlight. The, the, the idea that desire is by definition, hysteric. When I, I work with the Puerto Rican syndrome, it was very helpful for me to use this notion of hysteria in the extended sense, no longer as a kind of crippling pathology, long past, a kind of anachronism in today's times, but rather as a form of being that is almost normal. Anyone who speaks is somehow hysteric. Mm. And also thinking that when we talk about hysteria, we are talking about a neurosis. When we are talking about a neurosis, we are talking about so-called normals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not an extreme pathology. Anyone who may have questions about his or her desire is in a hysteric position. Mm-hmm. Also thinking that anyone lying on the couch who may ask uh, himself or herself, who am I, what do I want, what am I doing here, what for? That's a sort of hysterical question. And that psychoanalysis by making a person lie on a couch and free associate and talk and question what he or she is saying is hystericizing. So anyone in analysis, we become whether or not this is strictly, we could say the, the, the most accurate diagnosis may or may not be hysteria, but is, by way of psychoanalysis, hystericized. Mm-hmm. And also Lacan takes hysteria as a form of social link, as a form of a connection, and as a form of making desire, and also as a lens through which we could understand structures of power. That was extremely helpful for me uh, more explicitly with the Puerto Rican syndrome because I felt that these hysterics who elicit somehow the diagnosis of Puerto Rican syndrome, which is a classical form of hysteria, are in a way exposing also something about the person diagnosing. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it's revealing something about the structure of power, also with the peculiarity of Puerto Rico with a very complex 
political position of Puerto Rico. So his theory is also a way of looking at the political element that uh, even if we may not be aware of, is uh, always present in our practices. Psychoanalysis is a very political practice because we are working with the unconscious and one of um, Lacan's famous dictums is the idea that the unconscious is structured like a language. So he's claiming that the unconscious is always at the same time social, like language is something that we, we share with the community. We don't uh, invent language. Each of us, we may choose certain words that we prefer to use, but we follow syntax, grammar rules, a specific language we have been born into, or we may, as in my case, move to another country and change languages, mm-hmm. but keep traces of the mother tongue, as you may hear in my accent, <laughs> that are unconsciously determined. I cannot get rid of my accent, for instance. <laughs> so you, there you see that there is something social beyond you, that, mm-hmm. and probably my accent is the same accent that anyone coming from Argentina would have. So mm-hmm. there you see that the most individual thing, my accent, is also social because I share it with the community of immigrants <laughs> speaking English with an Argentinian accent. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, the, the idea of this, this social, the political idea, and hysteria is the best way of exploring that. And in that sense, uh, as long as we will have discontent in society, there will be hysterics to denounce it. <laughs> so in that sense, I don't think hysteria will disappear. What happens is that the hysteric symptoms change. The hysteria has this characteristic of echoing the social context. So mm-hmm. they may pass as other symptoms, and that's why we have at times different facts of certain symptomatologies like mm-hmm. bipolar or borderline. Mm-hmm. But all, and there is something also in hysteria challenging those in the position of power. That could be perhaps an analyst who wants to come up with a diagnosis. So in that sense, there is something a little recalcitrant about the hysteria, <laughs> annoying even, or defiant. Yes, very, very much so. So if we were to take that idea that, I mean, hysteria is... Uh, is flexible in that way. It it it, it uh, you know moves and shifts and represents uh, you know as you say in the book it goes throughout history you can fi- you can find the hysteria, um, but it's always taking a different form or often taking a different form. What um, how would you understand um, the uh, the critique of power um, from the point of view of tra- of transgenderism and of transsexuality? I mean what because if that if that's how you're understanding it, what's what's the critique? What's the what's the commentary? Um, what is the hysteric um, in that guise um, telling us about about our moment culturally? Um, I think that what uh, I was able to read is that there is a tension between a sort of post-feminist discourse in which we no longer are limited by the constraints of sex that. Gender is an issue of uh, identity, and we will be supposedly freer. Mm. And that's, in a way, what I heard from patients who had gender trouble, but they were not thinking about changing sex. And that's when I talk about patients who ask, "Am I straight? Am I bisexual?" And they were, I think, denouncing this tension between a discourse that supposedly would promise more, much more sexual freedom, and uh, a contrast and a tension because many uh, 
patients who are thinking about changing sex were talking in a way that at times was very traditional in terms of uh, gender roles, for instance, how women should be, how men should be, how women behave, how men behave. And also there are times issues around sex changes are very bewildering. I found in my research as well something that still am puzzled by it, and uh, maybe people in the audience could have an answer for this, that in, in countries that we will not so easily be called democratic, like Iran, uh, right. If uh, someone wants, it's mostly men, but if somebody wants to have a sex change, that would be legal. This is a country where homosexuality could carry death penalty, where women don't have any political representation. But a sex change is allowed, authorized, and even encouraged. Mm-hmm. So we see there tensions, or oh, certain discourse about sex change seems to be liberating, but why is it that a country like Iran embraces it so much? It makes you question, could in the name of this type of sexual freedom, a new form of oppression be emerging? And I think this is what this hysteric complaint is exposing. That's very, very interesting. One, you, there was a quote I have from you, uh, I forget which chapter it was in, but from um, Please Select Your Gender, um, where you ask, is the medical transformation of the body an extreme of this urge to enjoy without considering the body as a last limit? Is the surgical intervention in the body a desperate way of inscribing a prohibition to regulate enjoyment after a measure of control has been lost? Um, and you end the book um, with this idea that is, uh, is what's the relationship between changing one's gender and uh, a dream of immortality, that, um, mm-hmm. that as we have a culture that uh, keeps removing certain, certain limits, um, I had the thought as I was reading the book that the person who says I'm going to, um, the, I don't know. I just was thinking about is it, there's also a cry for a limit potentially um, for mm-hmm. for yeah for sort of for a limit to be put up and that the body um, is sort of the last limit. Susie Orbach, who I interviewed on this show, talks about um, bodily instability, people wanting to remove body parts, and I was thinking, what it, what are they? Uh, What's being communicated about um, not just the unconscious conflict in that person, but what's being communicated to the culture in in that cry, um, in that attempt to? Uh, uh, there's a man who wanted to have his leg cut off beneath his knee, and really, you know, she tells the story. I think you even refer to it potentially in your book, mm-hmm. um, and the 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 request for for a limit is something that I hear. Is that something that uh, that you're that you're referring to in in a way with the quotes I gave the, about the transformation of the body as an extreme. Yes, because I, I think what uh, one possible danger is, and it's something that I try to to convey through the book, that uh, I take distance from the, the position that often psychoanalysts take. Mm. mostly when they, they they deal with people who may say, I am a man born trapped in, in the body of a woman, or mm-hmm. that this is a sort of uh, delusional discourse, therefore anyone who has that type of gender trouble, who wants to undergo a sex change, has to be psychotic. Right. I disagree with that because that's what uh, my clinical practice has taught me. I had worked with patients who, who had 
undergone a sex change and were not psychotic. Mm -hmm. I had seen others who were, yes, of course, but we cannot generalize. I think I, I recommend prudence when diagnosing uh, transsexuals. I think, and don't even talk about transsexuals as a diagnosis. I think they're transsexual symptoms. Mm -hmm. And as such, symptoms could emerge in any uh, structure. So I, I argue for the depathologization of uh, transsexual phenomena, but also I disagree with the idea that if then uh, transsexualism is not an illness, a sex change cannot be a cure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we need, so, in, in the, so it, it could be a very subjective particular choice that benefits from being analyzed, because that's w one thing that I was asked, well, but how do you intervene as a psychoanalyst with uh, people who may want a sex change, you could intervene as a psychoanalyst, analyzing it. Is this a symptom? Is this a choice? What is this about? And once this motivation had been analyzed, then it could be act out, and it will not be a, a, an, an acting out, which could be the case. Mm -hmm. It will be a, an, 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 an understood decision that has been already analyzed and, and it's done in, as a different, and it has a different quality as an action. So in a way, do you know the work of, um, uh, what was her name, Evelyn Hooker, who was, uh, was central, she was a um, psychologist, I believe, who was central in the um, removal of homosexuality from the DSM as mm -hmm. a uh, pathological condition, mm -hmm. and she basically made the same argument. She said, it, it, I mean, it's incredible that the wheel has to be recreated, but she said, oh, you know, um, you can uh, you can be psychotic and be a homosexual. You can be neurotic and be a homosexual. Mm -hmm. You can be uh, a pervert and be a homosexual. You can be you know she went sort of through all, which is which is essentially I think what what your um, which is sounds like that's your position as well if I understand you is that yes yeah mm -hmm. and there has been also controversy about why gender identity disorder is in the DSM is it a pathology that you could diagnose as a mental disorder. Or could be a symptom. Right. And as a symptom, could be just a manifestation of something else. The symptom is, in a way, we could say it's a metaphor. Could be a metaphor, as we were saying before, of a need for limit, or could be something else. And that we can only discover that through analysis. And 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 it's a case by case situation. We cannot have a general rule in the same way that homosexuality depends what it is for each person mm -hmm. the and 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 the and whether or not I don't think it's something that needs to be corrected is mm -hmm. it, it is what it is uh, but it doesn't i think it, it's important before there is a a manipulation of the body a change in the body and and I had once a patient and I think she was absolutely right she was talking about the letter that often uh, people who want to have the, any the prescription for hormones or the surgery for the sex change, they need a letter from a therapist. And I imagine people in the audience may have encountered in their practice that sure. that she was complaining. Well, why do I need a recommendation letter from my therapist if I was going to have plastic surgery or on my breasts just to make them bigger? Nobody would ask me. <laughs> in this case, it was a woman who wanted a double mastectomy. If I want to make them big, it would be okay. Nobody would ask for any letter. I want... To have a different type of surgery, I need a recommendation letter. And I think she was right. Mm -hmm. I think anyone who may want to undergo 
a bodily transformation that is often hard to reverse, it would be important to analyze because in many cases it could be a symptom that mm-hmm. could mean something very different from what in the surface it looks like. And that's, I think, the wonderful work of analysis that we can discover in the unconscious the surprise of what this may mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it may mean something completely different from what we consciously may assume on both sides, on the side of the analyst or the analysand. Well, you, you um, elaborate on a concept that was um, pretty new to me, and I don't even know if I'll pronounce it correctly. It's called the synthome, S-I-N-T-H-O-M-E. It's a Lacanian concept. Mm-hmm. And you, as you're introducing this idea, which I'll ask you to, to, to um, define a bit or talk about for the listeners, but as you're writing in Please Select Your Gender about the creation of the synthome, you're writing about the importance of writing uh, mm-hmm. and the many memoirs that have been written by people who have had sex changes and about mm-hmm. the importance of speech um, and writing in in sort of this uh, amelioration of uh, a symptom or is it a synthome? Anyway, if you could talk about this uh, more and, and let the audience know, I thought it was a really fascinating idea. I wanted to hear more. And it has to do a little what we are talking about as depathologizing transgenderism. Mm-hmm. That the idea that uh, when I, I work with these uh, patients, I found that they had a very peculiar kind of body, a body that could slip away, fall, as mm-hmm. it were, because mm-hmm. when a person feels, and, and this is uh, very evocatively described in, in the sex change memoirs, you often have these descriptions of feeling trapped in a body that is experienced at times almost like a prison from which people need and want and feel compelled to escape from. Uh, and, and why was the body experienced in this particular way? And I, I found very useful is the concept of the very late Lacanian at the, the end of his life. He proposed a new idea of the symptom that moves away from the symptom as we may find it in medical practice. Mm-hmm. It's a symptom that goes back to a more older spelling in French of the word symptom, the contemporary word for symptom, right. but that conveys a symptom that has a different function. It's no longer a manifestation of pathology, but a, a way of enjoying one's unconscious, a way of making do with who we are and why we are. And I found that this notion of the symptom was very helpful for me to understand uh, something that called my attention when I was researching for the book is why there were so many sex change memoirs written. When you go to a bookstore, there's a big section always of sex change memoirs. And I was thinking, what compels this desire to write, to, to document the experience of a sex change? And, and reading the memoirs and what I learned also from the patients is my conclusion was that there was a function in tying together body and soul, we may say through writing, that the body needed to be written. And my, my conclusion reading the memoirs was that someone who undergoes a sex change is not enough to take the hormones, is mm-hmm. not enough to have the surgery. There is some, something that is, happens when they write about it, mm-hmm. that is in the process of writing about the sex change, that they 
become they can assume their new subjectivity in their new gender. It's a form of it's like a suturing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's a suturing. Yeah. That allows for the for, for them to fully exist in their body. Also can allow them to to make a name for themselves because some of these exchange memoirs are extremely well written and mm-hmm. and and make, transform the authors into a name that they acquire a name and and there I also borrow a lot from uh, this one year long seminar that Lacan works on this invention, this symptom, this that something that happens at the end of analysis and he discovers that working with James Joyce and working on the art and the function of writing that uh, what writing what art did for James Joyce uh, Lacan would argue that James Joyce could have become mad but avoided a destiny of madness through his art through writing mm-hmm. so that there is something that anchors the subject in one's Art, but art in an extended sense, not art as a, a fine art, but rather as craft and knowing how to do, which is something that any practitioner would have observed at the end of a treatment, at the end of a successful analysis. The analysis knows how to make do better with trauma, with a difficult family situation. They acquire what we may say in French, savoir-faire, and know how to. <laughs> Yes, but 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 not as not as a big as a, not like an artist as gifted as James Joyce, but the kind of know how to of somebody who on weekend could do a fun project mm-hmm. that life becomes a project like the fun project we can do on a weekend as a sort of craft. Mm-hmm. The art of that one acquires the craft of learning how to living one's body, even if that body needed to undergo different changes. And one, I, I learned the craft of being whoever one knows or learns how to be. Right. And, and that I found very helpful to understand, not just issues of transgenders, but I think it's something that we could apply sure. in the general practice with any patients. As one uh, objective of, of the analytic treatment that the cure would produce a subject with a symptom that is no longer a crippling symptom that brings a patient to analysis, mm-hmm. but a different type of symptom that allows one to live as simple as that. Right, right. And without it, it's certainly not about adaptation, and it's more about the uh, sort of uh, elaboration of one's subjectivity. That's the sense that I have. Absolutely. That, mm-hmm. Nothing to do with adaptation. It's more like an invention. It's something that mm-hmm. one invents, to live life well. And it could be the little quirky, the idiosyncrasies of people that the, uh, the way a hobby makes life livable, that one finds a way of how to function in the world and how to live with oneself with this mm-hmm. and inhabit one's body. Right, right. That in the case of people with uh, gender, severe gender trouble, that was a big burning issue that gets resolved and, and the writing has this effect as you said of such like really puts the stitches that keeps things together mm-hmm. it's so it sews things up it sews things to exactly. attaches them to each other yeah but like holding them together not in the sense of like covering them up or no no pressing them it's the sense of a body that didn't hold together suddenly holds together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that a- is it's a beautiful idea. And I think 
Yeah, an idea of future is interesting because when we have that, there will always be a scar. So it's not the idea of erasing the traces. No. But knowing is there, and it's just a mark. And, and a mark of something that happened, but not a, a crippling, inhibiting element. That reminds me of the patient you speak about in the Puerto Rican syndrome who had had the um, terrible, uh, the the uh, gunshot wound through her head in the, in the laundromat yes. and wearing her scarf mm-hmm. and, uh, and the, tr- and her transformation, which was also really the creation of a, of a, a symptom or a symptom, you know, that it, it was be- a beautiful story. Um, a beautiful piece of clinical work. I guess we're almost out of time. Can I ask you one more question and keep you sure. a couple of minutes? I, um, one thing that hasn't, um, come up, uh, in our interview yet, which I think is really important for people to, to know and to think about, um, you ask some some I, what I think some hard questions about American psychoanalysis, um, and one question you ask is why has American psychoanalysis, um, and this is from the Puerto Rican syndrome, been unable to undertake? I'm quoting you here: the task of fo- fostering the integration of the people marginalized by the society at large. You've run a clinic in North Philly, a uh, very poor neighborhood. I think you. Pro- I don't know if you were working with Deborah Lupnitz, but I'm thinking of her work on the yes, you know, yes. on the family. And yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm part of her network of yeah. pro bono yeah, yeah. work for people who would otherwise not have access to psychoanalysis. I mean, you re- you you write uh, this beautiful, uh, you, you have so many ideas, it's very, all of your work is very thought-provoking, because on the one hand, I'm like, oh, she's talking about, you know, social welfare policy here, and oh, she's talking about history here. So at one point, you were talking about, um, uh, you know, running this clinic, and I think that you began to um, uh, charge people money, right? Not just where it seemed like you weren't just going to mm-hmm. accept the Medicaid, but people had to actually pay something, which I thought was brilliant. Where's, you know, how do, how do we have the treatment without, um, without that exchange to, to analyze and to understand? Um, but I was, I interviewed Neil Altman, uh, I don't know, mm-hmm. about a year ago about the analyst in the inner city and who's worked in a similar setting as yourself. Um, and my sense was that for him, he was um, uneasy with a power imbalance between the clinician and the analysand in the clinic. And you seem to be proposing that via a Lacanian approach, um, there's a way of working wherein that imbalance comes to be uh, I don't know if it's eradicated. Um, I don't know if that's really the word, but I'm sorry if you could if you could describe it because I think a lot of people do have this uh, this very conscious bias that you can't do analysis mm-hmm. with the poor. You know, I'm like really, what? But poor people have an unconscious. I mean, you know, what are you kidding? So what what can you talk to us a little bit about that work because it's very very interesting. Sure, uh, that it's very interesting that you bring that up because every time I mention that I had work. As a psychoanalyst in an inner city clinic, people look at me with suspicion and disbelief that often, you know, nobody will say that openly, but uh, the assumption is that poor people cannot afford to have an unconscious. Right. Of course, nobody will say openly, but for many different reasons, they have been excluded. The idea is that poor people have real problems that should be. addressed by real means. And of course, I cannot agree more with that. Of course, they have real problems. And I think social policies should take care of those. But that does not prevent them from having an unconscious, having sexuality, dreams, conflict. And uh, what I found in my experience is that I could 
have a psychoanalytic approach and it could be very productive and they were very willing to work and they would spontaneously bring a lot of dream material and they would work very well and it was interesting I'm using purposely the idea of work because uh, one interesting thing that psychoanalysis does is that makes people work that in psychoanalysis the analysis comes to work and pays to work Mm-hmm. And that's the issue you were mentioning, that we added the copayment because the, the treatment was seemingly free and people would then pay back by remaining in treatment for 20, 30 years. So they would never get cured. Mm-hmm. And this is a population of three generations of unemployment mm-hmm. whose only work was to produce symptoms, not to produce commodities. Right. So I think it was important to be in a position where they could work and complete the treatment and move on. So they could work productively and achieve a, a result. And it would concern the issue. I, I'm quite aware of Allman's objections. And I think he's, it's a very good point what he brings up. He's uh, talking about the obvious class difference that exists when a patient from inner city comes to a clinic will be seeing a professional who is most likely to be a middle-class person, a college-educated, or somebody with even with a high university degree. So mm. there are all these discrepancies, which indeed could lend themselves to a delicate power balance. That's why I think a psychoanalytic approach is so important, because first of all, the power is not in the therapist, but... Uh, who gives advice, therefore who knows what's better for the analysis, but rather that if there is a a power or a value, a capital at stake, is in the unconscious of the analysis. So it's not so much that the one with the knowledge is the professional with the diploma, but rather if somebody knows is the analysis and the knowledge is in his or her unconscious. And through the analytic work, that unconscious will open up and offer that knowledge and that truth. And that reverses the power dynamic because if there is a value in that exchange is in this knowledge that could be revealed and which is owned by the analyst and not by the analyst. Mm-hmm. I think yes, that of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I just was I was thinking that there may have been in the past 20 years a turn in uh, some schools of American psychoanalysis toward so considering the analyst contribution that mm-hmm. the uncon- that the patient's unconscious um is given short shrift um you know yep. that yeah. <laughs> it's like well you know actually what the patient makes of me is interesting you know that that's what the, what the patient makes of me is the transference and that's it's my job to to stay close to that to the transference not I'm not really concerned that the patient sees real differences. I don't know what they see, but they tell me, and they tell me, and, and that's the transference, and that's the unconscious. Yeah, and, and the transference is one element why the, the issue of the payment was, which is it's a very complicated issue and controversial uh, because the, the treatment was mostly paid by the health insurance, but mm-hmm. it was important to have a nominal copayment Absolutely. to make a commitment because they were paying to work. Mm-hmm. I, I had once a very funny anecdote where my daughter was very young. She made a little drawing uh, in kindergarten uh, of her mom's job. And you see two people and they have a big coin. 
for this. Both of them hold the Bitcoin. So she explained <laughs> to the teacher what's happening. That's my mother, the analyst, and this is the patient. And what's happening? The patients come and tell her their dreams. And what did she do? She pays them. Because <laughs> if, you, if you think in terms of capitalistic exchange, they bring me dreams, I should pay I should for the pay. commodity. <laughs> and so her, her idea was very, that, that would be justice. But psychoanalysis is outside capitalistic exchange. So <sighs> they bring their dreams and they pay. <laughs> and that kind of interaction is what creates transference, is what, exactly what you were saying, the Absolutely. issue of transference. So it's, it's totally asymmetric. So this, that asymmetric exchange keeps, however, the power on the side of the analyst who may choose not to come again, mm-hmm. or who may choose to um, say, tell the dream or not, or who will have to dream for the session because we may say, well, if you have a dream, bring it to the session. So we'll have to work and do all this. But there is, I think, especially for populations who are often never heard, mm-hmm. to have somebody in an office listening to them yep. is an very empowering Mm-hmm. position. And they choose to remain silent if they want. That's also empowering. Yeah. And the, the idea that they have free, the possibility for free association. We're talking about freedom and democracy. That's right. The possibility of being heard as subjects, because often uh, the interventions one observes tend to be very paternalistic and yes, very depriving, mm-hmm. yes, depriving the independence of the, the, the subject. It's a way of uh, forcing a situation of responsibility and giving them back something very important, which is their own word, speech, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they hear themselves talking to an analyst and their words acquire a different value. Right, and that the uh, the ability to have the negative transference um, is much more likely uh, when someone's paying. That's a very <laughs> good the, point. And the negative also, transference yeah. is, as we know, so 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 important. Um, to, to yeah, work, yeah. If you're in a situation which is, yeah, if you're given the treatment for free and everything is so nice and generous, what do you do with aggressivity? Yeah, what do you do with the negative feelings? Terrifying. It, so, yeah. whereas if you pay for your right to speak up, then you can say whatever you want. That's, that's why I always and, like. To, and, that's why I always try to raise my fees. You know, so my patients will continue to tell me what it is that uh, they need to say. If I don't raise the fee, they they're trapped, mm-hmm. and, and the analysis remains in a certain way trapped. I, I guess sometimes under the guise of equality, you know, this American idea of equality, we really. Um, end up because um, I've I've worked in clinics too, and I've often mm-hmm, thought mm-hmm, the patient should mm-hmm. pay me, you know, fifty cents, you know, a dollar. Like there should be a transaction, there should be an arrangement. What's the fee? And of course, you know, the people said, no, you can't do that, and they don't have any money. And I said, everybody has a quarter if they want it. Yes, you know, absolutely. And, and they would come to the office drinking a soda for which they pay money, so <laughs> they are not out there because in a way, it's a way of infantilizing. They are. Uh, so one definition maybe we could give of a child is someone who doesn't really handle money. Mm-hmm. The child doesn't pay. They pay for the child. Whereas we're talking with adults and people who can have the responsibility of a, a copay for the treatment. Mm-hmm. And in our experience, I don't know how it was where you work, but what we saw is that as soon as we established this very low copayment, which just a couple of dollars, was nominal, but right. that the attendance was regular. That's right. That people really were were really committed and engaged in their work. They they value what they were doing in the session because they were paying for it. That's right. It makes abs- absolute sense. I really loved that point, and I wanted to 
um, have you, you know, talk about that because I, I, I think that it's uh, something a lot of um, is in, that, that the infantilization is really not about equality, is it? <laughs> infantilizing, Absolutely. Absolutely. infantilizing the other is, is in the name of Absolutely. equality. You know, we have mm-hmm. to we have to stop and uh, and bring things to a close. Unfortunately, you're fascinating, um, and uh, I've learned I really have learned a lot in talking to you. So I appreciate. You're um, spending thank time you for with the us. Opportunity oh, to sure. Have a conversation. Yes, and write another thank book. You. I'll read it and I'll interview you again. Okay. <laughs> well, that's, that's a good that's a good motivation to write. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. That'll be our exchange. Okay. Okay. <laughs> give me your book. I'll give Very you an good. interview. Okay. All right, Patricia. Uh, this has uh, been terrific. And um, to everyone listening and new books in psychoanalysis, thanks for tuning in. And um, next up, we'll have uh, John Burnham uh, to talk about his book. Um, after Freud Left, a collection of um, essays written by historians about uh, After Freud Left in 1909 in uh, the United States. Okay, so um, stay tuned and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.